Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Preaching a Lord's Supper emphasis message this evening. We've talked about many things over the, over the couple of years in regard to the Lord's Supper. We preached on the body of Jesus Christ. We spent much time focusing on the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I'd like us to consider this aspect of fellowship. Here in Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read to you from Luke 22 briefly. You may remain in Philippians chapter 3. Luke 22 verse 14 says this, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him and he said unto them with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Whenever we have an evening Lord's Supper service, we read out of that passage in Luke 22 as opposed to the passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Those of you that have had a Lord's Supper service in the evening, are familiar with that practice. And when I do so, there is a specific reason why. The 1 Corinthians passage marks with um, Paul's teaching the memorial nature of the observance that we call the Lord's Supper. As well, it marks the, in, um, the amount of gravity, the serious nature of the observance that we call the Lord's Supper. But when we get into the Luke passage, there's something else that while the Corinthians passage teaches well many aspects of the Lord's Supper, we see highlighted in a much greater way in the Luke passage, and that is this concept of fellowship that pervades the Lord's Supper. As I've mentioned many times before, the Lord's Supper truly does involve two very important elements. It it involves the aspect of it being a memorial. And it involves the aspect of it being a fellowship. It is a memorial that which Jesus Christ has done and it is a declaration of fellowship with Christ and with one another as we eagerly await the day upon which we will see Christ again. So today we're going to explore the fellowship which we share with Christ just a little bit deeper. Until the day that we see Jesus Christ face to face, until the day that we find ourselves in personal, one-on-one fellowship with Him, what is the fellowship of Christ and how is it that we can realize this fellowship in our daily lives? We renew this fellowship. We focus on this fellowship every month through the Lord's Supper. But how is it that day in, day out, we can focus on fellowship with Jesus Christ. So this evening, from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 15 specifically, we're going to see three concepts of Christian fellowship with Jesus Christ. Three concepts of Christian fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ. We're going to begin in verse 7. We'll we'll backtrack a little bit after I read these verses, but let's begin reading verses 7 and 9 as we see, first of all, the first concept, you share in the fellowship of Christ. Yieldedness. You share in the fellowship of Christ's yieldedness. Paul is writing to the Philippian church here and he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, 
Those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. As Paul writes to the Philippian believers in Philippians 3, it is within the context of a stern warning that he had given earlier. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul had exhorted the believers to have the mind of Christ and through the mind of Christ to be unified. He tells them in verse 2 to beware of some things. He says in Philippians 3 verse 2, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. As Paul calls them to beware, the Greek word behind this word beware is literally to see, to watch, to discern, to be perceptive. He is calling them to keep their eyes open lest these elements enter into the body of Christ and destroy their ability to have the mind of Christ thereby destroying their unity with Christ, which was the context of Philippians chapter 2, and by destroying the unity of Christ, thereby destroying their fellowship, both one with another as well as their fellowship with Christ. And so, as I mentioned, he, he warns them of three things. The first thing he says is, beware of dogs. That's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? Beware of dogs. Well, he wasn't actually speaking of canines here. He wasn't telling them to beware of Spot and Fido as they were walking down the street. That's not what he's saying here. When he uses the word dogs, it was a metaphor. It was a metaphor in Jewish culture to beware of, of really anyone that wasn't Jewish. But it was also a metaphor, he's writing to this Philippian church, uh, for that which was impure in mind or in body, men of impurity, whether it's impurity of mind or impurity of body, he's warning them to beware of that which was impure. Impurity is a sin that has a definitive way of spreading itself to those around it. Impurity of mind soon becomes impurity of action. Impurity of action has a way of tainting others with its filth. Impurity of speech, impurity of action, impurity morally, impurity of amusement, they all spread. They all seem to catch on. They all seem to get from one person to another. And so as Paul is exhorting them from Philippians 2 into Philippians 3, in the unity of Christ, in the mind of Christ, he specifically says, beware of those who are impure. Second, he says, beware of evil workers. Those whose actions are specifically focused upon stirring up trouble. Have you ever met anyone like that? Have you ever met anyone and it seems like their entire focus, like they wake up in the morning and they say, how can I cause conflict today? They walk into the workplace or they walk into the school classroom or they walk into the church and they start looking for people that they can jab. Poke, annoy, prod. They're looking for the, the, the drama. They're stirring up drama. It's like if they don't have drama, they have to find drama. Have you ever met anyone like that? Proverbs warns us against these people. Proverbs 4, verse 14 through 16 says this, Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not into the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. 
turn from it and pass away. For they sleep not except they have done mischief. And their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. Now, as Paul is exhorting against evil workers, he's not just exhorting against those that would annoy. He's exhorting against those that come into a church setting or that come into a godly setting and they seek to derail what God is doing. They stir up division and controversy and strife and bitterness and anger. Paul says those are evil workers. Beware of them. Because they're going to come in and they're going to try to throw off what, what God is doing. They're going to disrupt the unity of Christ. Beware. Beware of dogs, those who are impure. Beware of evil workers, those who are focused on stirring up trouble. And then third, he says, beware of the concision. Beware of the concision. These would be those who sternly seek separation and division based upon whether or not a person was circumcised. These would have been those held strongly to the Jewish conviction of circumcision that if a person is not circumcised, then a person is not a part of Christ that a person is not a part of the church. Now, it's interesting the word that Paul uses here. He doesn't say beware of the circumcision, does he? He says beware of the concision. He used the Greek word here that specifically speaks of bodily mutilation. It's not a word that simply speaks of the act of circumcision, but it speaks of one who would mutilate their bodies. Now, this concept would have been highly offensive to a Jew. It would have been highly offensive to a Jew to have been called one of the concision. One who would have been called one that mutilates their body. Because what they believed they were doing, what they were doing as Jewish men and women, was conforming themselves to God's standard to this covenant of circumcision. However, what Paul is trying to bring out here, now he's not trying to put down his own people. He testifies that he was circumcised the eighth day. He is one of these men that is circumcised. However, what he's trying to focus on is not those who are circumcised, but those who believe that there must be some manner of physical circumcision in order for a person to be right with God. His point is this. These people that are performing outward acts and they're trusting in these outward acts as an imperative part of their salvation need to be avoided. With such a carnal purpose, their act is spiritually meaningless. And in the, to the degree that it's spiritually meaningless, Paul says, look, it's really no better than any other form of bodily mutilation. It's really, there, there's no more spiritual effect to this act of circumcision anymore because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. There's no more spiritual effect in this act than there is in anything else, physical. Because, see, we're saved not by works, but by faith. We learned that today at the nursing home. In our day, as we would apply this concept to today, this would be the man who is stirring up trouble based upon their own interpretation of biblical expectations. They hold to particular standards. They hold to particular principles. They believe anyone who does not hold his interpretation and does not physically do those things that he believes are right, whether, whether through his interpretation or not, he believes that they are wrong and some churches take it to the point where if they don't do it our way, then they are not even saved. And so they cause division over these personal interpretations and they will not 
stopped. Their flavor of religion is satisfied. And that's what we saw here. A group of people who said, nope, if you're not a part of the circumcision, then you're not a part of the church and you're not a part of Christ. And Paul says, these are just the concision. These are just people that are completely off in the Gospel. He says, beware of them because they are going to disrupt the unity of fellowship. In, excuse me, Paul contrasts these men with Christians who are set apart in their hearts to God and therefore are those who truly are of the spiritual circumcision. He says, we are those who place no confidence in external works to earn us favor with God, but only internal yieldedness to Christ's teaching and Christ's will in us. Now, as he continues in verses 4-6, through six, Paul describes the reason why of anyone in Israel, Paul himself would have a good reason to think his actions could earn him some sort of favor with God. He says that he was circumcised the eighth day according to the law of Moses. He was of pure Israelite heritage. He was a Pharisee. Therefore, he had kept the law rigidly. He had a great zeal for his religion. He had actively persecuted those who had threatened it until one day on the road to Damascus, Paul met Jesus Christ. And he realized that all of those external things that he was doing brought him no closer to God, earned him no favor with God, and manifested no fellowship with God. And that's when he says in verse seven, But what things were counted gain to me, excuse me, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Paul repented. He turned to God from those works which he thought could save him and experience true fellowship through Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Paul states that of those things which were gained to him, he counted them all lost. Paul saw all of those self-righteous efforts to convince other people that he was godly as worthless. Paul saw all of those self-righteous standards of conduct whereby he felt godly as useless. Paul saw all of those self-righteous sacrifices in order to earn some spiritual merit as frivolous. He realized that fellowship with God was not a game. It was not something to be won or lost on the game board of personal achievement and effort. But rather, fellowship with Christ is a condition of yieldedness by faith to the will of God as revealed in the will of God. Fellowship with Christ is a condition of yieldedness by faith to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that he counts everything as loss in order that he might have fellowship with Christ. He will give up any earthly status, any personal pride, any self-effort, any material gain if he can only have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and be found in Him at the beginning of verse 9. Not to be found earning salvation or earning favor or earning anything, but only that the will of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit would pour out of His life through personal yieldedness to the Word of God. That was Paul's desire. This is the righteousness which is of God, not by works, but by faith. The only righteousness we have is that which is manifestly 
uh, excuse me, is that which is manifest as we abide in Christ. The only merit we have before God is the merit that comes from a conscience void of offense before God and man. A heart of sincerity and simplicity in our actions toward God and toward one another. Our righteousness is not found in doing, but found rather in why we do. Our righteousness is not found in action, but in intention. The righteousness of God is not found in works, but in yieldedness by faith. Christ lived His years on this earth completely yielded to the will of God. And when you are yielded to the will of God, when you are yielded to Christ, when you can say with Paul that my desire, I would count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of God, that I would set all things aside if only I may know Him, you are inherently in the most profound fellowship with Christ. For you are living Christ's will in your life through Christ's power in your life. So we see that fellowship comes not through actions, but through yieldedness. Now in a little while, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. I have told you many times that the Lord's Supper focuses, and I've told you even in this sermon, on memorial aspect and fellowship aspect. But it is not this act itself that we'll be performing that is going to bring us into fellowship with God. It's not the work that we'll be doing that will bring us into fellowship. It is the heart that is right with God that this encourages us to, to take place in our lives. That as we get ourselves right with God in order that we might be in fellowship with Christ and be in fellowship one with another, in order that we might partake of this together and not do it in vain and not do it unworthily, we cleanse our hearts, we ensure that there's no division among the brethren, and then we partake together. It is a means by which to lead us to fellowship. It does not itself lead us into fellowship. However, we share in the fellowship of Christ's yieldedness. Second, in regard to fellowship, you share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Look what he says, what Paul says in verse 10. He says, He's counted all things but loss that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. All of this yieldedness does indeed come at a price. Paul lived a life yielded to Christ, dead to self. But this meant he also lived a life in dramatic conflict with the philosophy and the expectations of the world around him. The world we live in is driven not by a love for Christ, but by selfish motives. It's driven by greed. It's driven by getting ahead one way or another. Oftentimes, this is the ends justify the means. Oftentimes, it's a pragmatic end. And yet, we live a different way. We live a life of selfless devotion to the truths of God's Word. And as we do so, it condemns the world for their selfishness. It condemns the world and reminds them that they are indeed lost, that they are indeed sinners. And you know, that brings about suffering. Because people don't want to be reminded that they're sinners. People don't want to be reminded that they're selfish and greedy and inherently sinful. Paul was a man who knew suffering well. 
He was stoned in Lystra for disturbing the peace on his missionary journeys. He often had to leave cities in the dead of light, excuse me, in the dead of night, lest men find him and kill him. He was an outsider in Jerusalem. He was ill-treated by his kinsmen, the Jews. He had a thorn in the flesh, some physical ailment of terrible consequence to him. But Paul says in verse 10 that these things made up the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of Christ's suffering. He says, I can endure all of these things because if one might remember, Christ endured it as well. In a few moments as we partake in the Lord's Supper, the intention is that we would remember the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. It's to remember His sufferings. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that a part of the fellowship with Jesus Christ is the fellowship of His suffering. That as we live a life that is yielded to God, we are going to come across men and women who don't like us. We are going to come across governments that would desire to eliminate us. We read quite often on Tuesday nights about the persecuted church in the Islamic context. We read about Pakistan a few weeks ago. This week I've got a newsletter from Egypt and we're reading about men and women in Christian churches who are being killed. Their communities are being burned. They are being beaten. They are, they are facing all manner of trial because they claim the name of Christ. But as they do so, as they go through these difficulties, they are in fact recognizing, realizing in their lives what Paul calls the fellowship of Christ's suffering. See, as we've talked about in John many times, the servant is no greater than his master. If they rejected Jesus Christ, if they hated Jesus Christ, if they sent Jesus Christ to the cross, should we expect that they will just receive us with open arms? We should not. Now, we don't go looking for trouble. But we recognize that a part of the fellowship of Christ is not just yieldedness, but we also fellowship in Christ's sufferings. Paul's personal testimony is that these sufferings are a primary means by which we realize personal fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. We share in the fellowship of Christ's yieldedness. Third and finally this evening, you share in the fellowship of Christ's resurrection. This is the good stuff. This is where things get exciting. See, because on this earth, we yield that which we cannot keep. We yield the materialism and the greed and the lust and the immorality. We yield that freedom that God has given us to do that which is right in our own eyes in order that we might do that which is right in God's eyes. And as we do such things, the world hates us. The world rejects us. The world despises us. And we share not just in the fellowship of Christ's yieldedness, but we share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. But you know, it's all for a purpose. And that is because we also share in the fellowship of Christ's resurrection. Look at me in verse 11. He says, If by any means I might attain... The resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which I uh, also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize 
of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul states in verse 11 that these elements of self-denial through personal yieldedness and through suffering make up those elements by which a disciple identifies with his future glorification. The fact that we have given up the things of this life, the fact that we are in a life where we are going to face some suffering and some difficulty for our faith, for our faith helps us understand the glory that is to follow. It helps us appreciate what we have to look forward to. It makes the rest that we have in the next life that much sweeter. That's what Paul is saying here. We live today as strangers and pilgrims on this earth knowing that we have a home of rest to come. We battle the world, the flesh, and the devil on this earth knowing that we will never have to battle them again the day that we pass over into eternity. We give up the lust of the eyes. We give up the lust of the flesh. We give up the pride of life knowing by faith that in doing so we obtain a greater reward in heaven that gold, that silver, and those precious stones. In verses 12-14, through Paul divulges his strategy. His strategy for complete fellowship with Christ. Four steps. Let me give them to you here. Step number one. Recognize that you have not arrived in your faith, but you are still a work in progress. He says in verse 12, not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after. He says, I haven't gotten there. I have not arrived in my Christian faith, but I am walking in fellowship with Christ. You want to walk in fellowship with Christ? Well, first of all, recognize you've not arrived. There's not a man or a woman in this room, much less in this church that comes on any given Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Tuesday night or any other time who has arrived in their Christian faith. We all, ladies and gentlemen, have work to do. Step one, recognize you've not arrived. Step two, determine to be yielded to the will of God and the Word of God in every facet of your life and ministry. He says, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. He says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. He says, I am going to be yielded to the will of God. I am going to be yielded to the Word of God. I haven't made it all the way, but you know what? I'm going to determine in my heart to do the best I can. Step three. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before. His third step was to set aside the past. He set aside his past failures. He set aside his past flaws. He even set aside his past victories and focused instead on present victory. You know you can't live in the victories of yesterday. We often tell people that you can't live in the shadow of yesterday's failures. You can't, con- you can't continue to beat yourself up for your failures yesterday. You need to confess them. You need to forsake them. You need to get back on the horse and you need to get back right with God. But you know, we can't live off of yesterday's victories either. I cannot say I'm right with God today because I had a great day yesterday. I cannot say I am a godly man today because I made a great decision five years ago or ten years ago or because, because ten years ago I was this. I was deacon. I was pastor. I was, I was in the church. I was in the choir. I was regularly doing things. I was right with God. I was following. I was active. I was serving. 
You can't live off of yesterday's victories today, just like you mustn't live off of yesterday's failures today. So, Paul says, forgetting everything that was behind, I'm going to reach forth to those things which are in front of me. I'm going to forge ahead. And that's the last step, step four. He says in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize. You need to press hard. Give it all you have every day. Confess your sin before God. Maintain right fellowship with God. Seek God in His Word. Seek God through prayer. Do the things, do the simple things, do the basic things that God has called us to do in order that we might be right with God and live a life of fellowship with Him. And in this way, Paul says, we share the fellowship of Christ. We do these things until the day that we'll see Him face to face. Paul uses the analogy as we've read of competition here to make his point. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize. He's using a running analogy there. I don't know if you've ever run a race, but if you have, you will understand exactly what Paul is saying. It's been a little while now since I've run a race, but I used to run competitively in college. And for those few minutes, depending on how long the race was, how far it was to be run, my thoughts were on one thing. The finish line. Now, I was a college student. I had a lot of responsibilities. I was the, a leader in my dorm. Deal with a lot of responsibilities in my dorm. I, had, I was a double major, so I had a great number of classes that I needed to um, see, get homework done, get things done for them. I was active in a Christian service, leading a, a Christian service to a nursing home in the area, and I had uh, logistical things that needed to get done for that nursing home ministry. But you know, for those few minutes that I was on that track, all of that stuff went out of my mind. There was one focus, and that was, how many times do I have to get around this thing again before I'm finished? How far do I have to go? How fast can I get there? That was my focus. As running goes, it is important to understand that one, as one progresses in the race, one mustn't slow down. You run at a pace that you're comfortable with. You, you push the very envelope of that pace, but you run your pace. And as you get toward the end, you dig deeper and you pull out everything that you have. When the race is over, the race is over. You can rest. You don't need that energy anymore. So you be sure that when you get to the end of that race, there's nothing left in the tank. And so you pace yourself until such time as you know, okay, I've got enough in the tank to push myself to the end. And you begin to push harder. And you begin to press harder. And you get a little faster. And you start to pass those people that you've been, um, that you've been pacing the whole time. And you get past them and you go and you go and you push and you make your mark. Paul says that's the key. See, we are eagerly anticipating the resurrection of the dead. That is the mark that we have one day. The rest that we have in Christ. But until the day that we find that rest, we've got to press. We're going to be facing the necessity of yielding to Christ and casting off those things that the world loves. We're going to be facing the realities of suffering as the world rejects us. But we do it and we press and we run and we endure because we know that when we get to the end, 
If there's anything left in the tank, it's wasted. We empty our tank because there's going to be plenty of rest at the end of the race. Now in just a few moments, we will partake as a church family in the Lord's Supper. As we do so, we understand that it has nothing to do with our salvation. The Lord's Supper is not a blessing unto salvation or anything. There is no special grace or blessing that comes from this observance. But, Jesus Christ said in Luke 22.15, With desire, have, uh, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Lord's Supper was an opportunity for Jesus and His disciples to share fellowship one last time together before His death. And as we partake this evening, it should be a reminder of this fellowship. A memorial of Christ's yieldedness and our opportunity to do the same. A memorial of Christ's suffering and our privilege to suffer for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And a memorial of the day when we will fellowship with Christ face to face in the glory of our resurrected bodies. You see, it all comes back to this. It all comes back to what Christ did. Our fellowship with Christ is found in these aspects. They're the very aspects that He suffered on the night of His crucifixion. He suffered this necessity of yieldedness to the will of God as He bowed in Gethsemane and said, Nevertheless, God, not My will but Yours be done. He suffered the contradiction of sinners, the beating and the scourging and the death of the cross, the true sufferings. But then He rose again from the dead. And we, as we fellowship with Christ, will realize all three of these things in our lives as well. And as we're reminded of these things, it should renew our personal determination to press toward the mark. To lay aside the weights that would hold us back from this mark of fellowship with Christ and in doing so, to find the fellowship that Christ longs to share with us until the day that we see Him face to face in glory.